We are witnesses, but the Spirit is the one that convinces. We are witnesses, but the Spirit is the one that convinces. You know, many times when we are talking to different people, we ended up talking more about ourselves than of the Lord. Sometimes that happens because we don't have all the information, or because we, have, we haven't really thought through all the information about the Lord Jesus Christ and how is that we want to evangelize people. Now, there's different things that happen throughout that uh, really, some of us make, might feel very uncomfortable when it comes to witnessing. And we might not want to do it very often just because we don't want others to feel that we are weird or that we want to convince everybody, etc., etc., etc. You know, I love the Lord because He takes away that pressure from us. Because according to the Bible, the one that convinces the person that we are trying to bring into reconciliation with God, the one that, one, that we're inviting to follow Christ joyfully and help others do the same, that person that we're trying to bring to reconciliation with God, you know, they're not going to believe because of the amount of words that we have. Now, we have the responsibility to express the, go the gospel clearly, but at the same time, the one that is going to convince the person is the Holy Spirit. He is the one that has promised that. And how do we know this? Now, there's a couple of things that we have to say today. Yeah, we're going to cover a lot of information. Yes, could you say a lot of information? There's going to be a lot of information, so bear with me. We're going to cover three chapters in the book of Acts. Three. Uh, last week, we tried to cover one, and we got stuck in a few details, right? But today, we're going to try to accomplish, we're going to try to cover three chapters, 24, 25, and 26 of the book of Acts. But before that, we need to, re to be reminded of one thing. Actually, it's going to be two, but the first one is, in John 16, verse 8, we find the following. This is very important because this is exactly what we're going to see as Paul is encountering five people, three men and two women. They are, two of the men are um, governors in the province in, in um, Palestine, and one is a king. And two of the people, that the other two, the women, they are the spouses of the, uh, the king and one of the governors. So as Paul is encountering kings and people that are uh, um, in power, uh, we see how Paul is not intimidated by the power that they, they have. Uh, Paul is going to speak clearly. He's going to defend himself from the accusations that the Jewish people have brought up against him. But we need to be reminded that it's not the amount of words that Paul is going to tell them. If we don't depend on the Holy Spirit when we are witnessing about the Lord, then things aren't going to go very well. The Bible says here in, Acts 6, in, in the book of John 16, verse 7 and 8. John 16, 7 and 8, the Bible says, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for, I will, for I, I, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
So as we think of these chapters, these three chapters, we need to be reminded that Paul is going to explain to them why is he being accused? Why is he standing before Felix, then Festus, then Agrippa? And how is that his words and how he's going to defend himself from the accusations? But through that, he's also going to speak about the main issue. And the main issue becomes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not standing trial because of the accusations that the Jewish people are doing, but ultimately because I would like for you to come with me to another part here in the Scriptures. In Acts 9, Acts 9, we're going to go a little bit behind, uh, a little bit back. Acts 9, we're no longer in John, now we're going to go to Acts 9, where... Paul has been blinded by a light. Cataracts are in his eyes. And now for three days, he's been fasting and waiting for the Lord to explain to him why he's waiting. At the same time, there's a, a, a guy, a Christian by the name of Ananias, who has received a vision from the Lord, and he's been told that he needs to go and visit with Paul. Yeah, Paul, the, the one that was persecuting the church. Yeah, that one that rejoiced when other people were put in jail because they believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that Paul that was consenting in the fact that Stephen was being killed and he was asserting with his head and he was almost applauding. So much that even the clothing of Stephen was placed at his feet and he consented in his death. This Paul now has seen the Lord. And this Paul is now blinded because of the power of the Lord and he's in waiting. He's fasting. And Ananias has been told by the Lord, you're going to go and see Paul. And he's like, mm -mm -mm. Uh, let me tell you, Lord, about this guy, Paul. You probably don't know who he is. It seems like he's acting that way. Nonetheless, when we get to chapter 9 in Acts, this is what the Lord, this is the direction that the Lord gives to Ananias. Verse 15, For the Lord said to him, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I know we saw this last week, and I know that we were reminded of this situation, but we are studying the book of Acts, and we need to remember that it's the Acts not only of the apostles, the works of the apostles, but it's the works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very present in this book. And we see how the Holy Spirit is going to be present right since the beginning. When the Lord is taken up, in heaven and receiving glory. In chapter 2, we see how the Holy Spirit comes down with power, and then it begins a process that was described before in Acts 1.8, where it tells us that the apostles and everybody that's a believer was going to be a witness in, first of all, in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. The apostles have done a great job in taking the gospel in there in Jerusalem and Judea and even as far as Samaria. 
But they are very leery. They are very reluctant to take the gospel to Gentiles. You see what it says here. God had already preordained that Paul was going to be one of the ones that was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, to us. I don't know, in, a, in, in an audience like this, there might be a few people that are from Jewish background, from Jewish descent. But the majority of us are Gentiles. So we are very interested in Paul taking the gospel to people that aren't Jewish. Because that means us. That means us. That we, we, we did not, according to the Bible, we did not have the promises. We did not have any relationship to Abraham. We're not by the faith. So, at this point, in the book of Acts, we see how the gospel is being, it's been taken throughout Europe, obviously. It jumps from, um, from Asia Minor to Europe and all of that. And for three times, in three times, he goes... Uh, and with different people, Paul. And then, now at this point, he's going to come back. He returns to Jerusalem as instructed by the Lord. The Lord said to Ananias this part, right? That he was going to be a witness to kings, to Gentiles, to the people of Israel. So now, at the end, toward the end of the book of, book of Acts, the gospel has been reached out in other directions, and now it's returning to Jerusalem but why? I thought we had already been to Jerusalem. Yes, but uh, there's a part there that hasn't happened yet. And we're about to see how the gospel is going to be announced to kings and to people in power. Uh, you think that the gospel is only for people that have no education? Or people that are weak? That cannot, cannot find any hope or any situation where they could have peace without religion no the gospel is for the people that is very uh, like uh, like slaves but it's also for people like kings even though they don't know that they have needs of course they have the greatest need that every human being has they are separated by god because of their sin so we get to the book of acts in in acts 24 in Acts 24, the situation is Paul has been now detained since chapter 20 and 21. He's been accused of different things. And now he's going to go before the new governor, Felix. Antonios Felix. I like his name. Just saying. I mean, Paul next, uh, he, has a, uh, he has a hearing before. Felix, the governor, and governor was uh, the husband of Drusilla. Some people might think, how is that this guy, we don't, know, we don't know that much about Felix, other than he married the youngest daughter of Herod, one of the many Herods. Actually, she was probably 17 years old. By definition today, he would be a pedophile. All right? Felix would be a pedophile. This was his third marriage. He was, not, he was not a faithful man. He's going on his third marriage. He was born into slavery. And somehow, he grew to a, to a, to a point where he bought his, his freedom, and then he married very well. He married the daughter of the king, making him eventually a king himself. Or, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a governor himself. This is interesting because... Um, 
uh, that this daughter, Drusilla, is also very interested in what's going on out there. It was customary for accusers to present an oratorial argument. So let's see what happens here in chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullius, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul has been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying to the governor, I'm going to save you all the details because you could go back and read it yourself. But basically, they're accusing him of three things. Number one, that he was a troublemaker. That everywhere he went, he went to Cyprus and he was a troublemaker. He went to Athens, he was a troublemaker. He went to Philippi, he was a troublemaker. And he would go first to the synagogues, we've seen all that, and make a bunch of problems in there. Well, of course, because he was witnessing about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was witnessing about Messiah. And when you encounter, when you encounter God, at that moment, when you understand that it's either choosing God or choosing the world, you have an option to make. So in the eyes of many, that would be troublemaking. The other accusation is that he brought... Um, Gentiles into the temple. By the way, let's jump to verse 17, please. Because it says here, I mean, after Tertullius, by the way, if, you're, if you see how Tertullius is just, oh, it's just giving a lot of words. Oh, magnificent Felix. Oh, how wonderful it is to be here in your presence. Blah, 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 blah. He just wants to be, he was wanting to, uh, to make himself very, likable by Felix. And this, in this case, when we arrive in verse 17, it says, Now after seven years, I came to bring aims to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. So they're accusing me of being a troublemaker, but the reason why I came it's because after seven years, I wanted to come to the temple and present an offering that many people have gathered, and now I'm here to present it. And also to cleanse myself, to do the, the religious activities proper to the temple. Verse 20, or else let this man tell them by themselves. So, hey, you, you think that I'm lying? You think that I'm just that I came to Jerusalem only to create problems? No, that's not the reason. I didn't come to this. So after a little bit, uh, verse 22, but Felix, having more exact knowledge about the way, put them off. Now, I don't know if in your Bible appears like in mine, but the way is with capital W. Have you noticed that? The, the way means, back then, the church wasn't known as the ecclesia, the ecclesia as it became later on, the assembly. At this point, the way is the church. And they call it the way primarily because everywhere they say that everywhere you go from Damascus all the way to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem all the way down to Egypt, along the way there will be preach, people preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was also because it describes what Christians ought to do, being the way of the Lord, following the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty much like what happened with the apostles. He would go and say to a few of the apostles, like Matt and like Matthew, 
I call him Matt, just for my friend, right? I'm so familiar with that book. Anyway, Matthew, and he says to Matthew, follow me. So he begins to follow Christ in the way. So everybody that became part of the church, he was part of the way. There are other reasons, but those two are the most popular of the reason why is it that he was called the way. Now, Felix knew about the way. Obviously, as a governor, he needs to know, he needed to know what was going on in his region. So he wasn't, he wasn't at all unfamiliar to what was going on in his uh, province. And it says that because he knew about this way, um, knowing a little bit about this, the, uh, the way, it says in, in verse 22, and now that he had it in context, when Lysias, the commander, came down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to keep in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish. Then sent Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But what he was discussing was righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. <laughs> so when we go, when we, are, um, when we are preparing the gospel, when we are presenting the gospel because we are witnesses, witnesses, we need to believe that the Spirit is the one that is going to convince. But let me tell you, one thing that might come, and in your notes probably, if, if you have a note, the gospel may frighten people. The gospel may frighten people. People. Antonio, where do you, why are you drawing this? I don't see it. Well, re bear with me. It says here that when they were talking about righteousness, right, um, in ver verse 25, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix, what? Felix became frightened and said, go away for the, uh, for the present. Uh, and then I find time and I will summon you. So when he begins to understand three things, three things, they're talking about it. He, you know, Felix and Drusilla, they are very interested in what, the, what, what God says about these three things. He doesn't say how long they were talking about it, but we assume that it was on repeated occasions. And then, at a moment, when they begin to talk about, first of all, number one, righteousness. Not only righteousness means being right with for the Lord, before the Lord. And the Bible says that the only way to be righteous before the Lord is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're assuming two things. that he's talk They're talking about doing what is right, believing in God, believing in Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, doing what's right, but also um, doing what is right. He is the king. He's been married multiple occasions. He has a, um, a fame as a womanizer. Number two, not only righteousness, uh, the only way that we could become righteous before the Lord is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty much like whom? Like the first Jew. Abraham, who believed and was counter as righteousness. Number two, the other, the other topic that they're talking about is not only righteousness, but um, self-control. That is the ninth 
fruit of the Spirit, self-control. The ninth fruit of the Spirit, as it says, it is described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Self-control, the ability that a person has to say no to sin and yes to holiness. Self-control. Some of us need to exercise that self-control when we're dealing with our children. Because we want to tell them a few things and they don't want to listen sometimes. Some of us need to exercise that self-control when we're dealing with mommy and daddy. Because we think they're not right and I'm going to tell them exactly what I'm thinking. But we need to exercise self-control. Some of us need to exercise self-control when we're talking with our friends in school. Because we're hearing what they're saying and we want to be cool and we want to be in and want to go down. But in reality is, if you don't exercise that self-control with your friends, you're going to lose the ability to bring them to Christ. So we need that self-control. Some of us need to exercise that self-control when we are going through that valley of the shadow of death. Either because somebody else died or because we are experiencing a, a disease or something that is putting us at the gates of death. And we feel that we're losing all hope. But let me tell you, we exercise self-control. We could say no to sin and yes to righteousness, yes to holiness, and glorify the Lord that way. So tell me, you think that a governor could exercise a lot of, a governor like Felix, you think that he was interested in exercising self-control? Probably not. And that makes him feel frightened. But that's not the end of it. So he only talks about righteousness and then self-control. And on top of that, he also talks about the judgment that is coming. He is a judge. He is a ruler. He is a governor. He thinks that there's nobody that he's accountable to. And Paul is rem reminding him, wait a second. There will come a time where you, when you, like every other man, like every single man or woman, is going to be standing before the Lord and you're going to give an account of everything you did. Now, isn't it beautiful that in the, in the Word of God, in 1 John 2.1, it says that, dear children, these things I have written to you so that you know, right? You are forgiven, right? And that, and that the Lord expects righteousness from each one of holiness. I write these things to you so that you won't sin. You sin no more. Ah, but if you sin, we have a lawyer that is going to be standing right next to us when we are seated in the judgment of the Lord, if we were to appear before the Lord. But imagine that we go before the Lord once we die, and we go before the Lord in that judgment seat, and we go with no one. We're representing ourselves. And the Lord says, I'm going to read to you everything you did. And then at the end, I'm going to pronounce a judgment upon you. If that person goes before the Lord, before the judge of everyone, that person is in big trouble. But at the moment that the Lord Jesus Christ is next to us, and we go before the perfect, loving judge, 
and he starts describing all the things that we have done, we have a lawyer right here that says, hey, 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 hey. let me explain to you one thing right now, oh lawyer, oh, oh judge. I am representing this person, yeah, it's Antonio, and I know everything he did, and you know everything Antonio did. But let me show you one thing. You see this? You see these marks? You see these scars? You see this scar right here? You see the ones in my feet? Everything has been paid off. And at that moment then, the judge says, you're free. Welcome into my kingdom. But the person that hasn't believed in Jesus Christ as a personal Savior is going to stand by himself before the Lord, before a perfect judge, expecting perfection. And at that moment, Felix is thinking, oh my, what am I going to do? He becomes frightened. So that's the problem. The gospel may frighten people. And in the case of Felix, we see a frightened man because of the things that he has done. Look at verse 26, just to see how pervert, how, how horrible his heart was. At the same time, me too. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send him quite often to converse with him. Uh, so you think he was talking, he wanted to talk about uh, a Bible study? Hey, let's have a Bible study. You know, he was expecting a bribe. Now, two years go by. Two years. Not one month, not two months, two years. And he's not freed. Well, because of the situations and other, other corruptions, history tells us that everybody got tired of him and they changed him. So, verse, so chapter 25 uh, after two years that Felix is dealing with Paul, he's changed. He gets changed and transferred. We don't know what happens after that with him. Josephus never talks about that anymore. But Festus is the name of the new guy. Festus then, having arrived uh, in the province, three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and, and the leading men of the Jewish brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him requesting a concession against Paul that he might give him, um, he might brought to Jerusalem at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. So now we move from Felix to Festus, like asbestos, but yeah, Festus. So Felix, Feliz Navidad, Felix Navidad, that's what it means, right? Felix, Festus. Festus is a little bit more righteous. He's less corrupt than his predecessor. He's less corrupted. And so much that when he arrives and he hears about probably about this guy that has been there for two years and his case hasn't moved along, he's so committed to, to resolve this problem that having arrived a few days later, he descends from all the way from where he was. He travels a long time just to go to Jerusalem not only for that reason, but it was one of the main reasons that he wanted to talk about Paul. When he gets there and uh, they, the chief priests are asking him, well, you've had Paul up there and we cannot, bottom line, right? We cannot reach him where he is. We cannot kill him. You remember what happened last week? 40 guys, 40 people are fasting or fasted before. Well, if they were fasting for two years, they would be dead. 
So uh, at, a, at a moment, probably they, they, they didn't really care for that situation. But very quickly, if they hear that Paul is going to come back, you know what they're going to try to do? They're going to try to kill Paul. So much that even the high priests are, de are developing this idea to bring him back and not even allowing him to get to Jerusalem. They're going to ambush him before he even gets to Jerusalem and they're going to kill him. I mean, these are the religious people. These are the godly people. And they're trying to kill Paul. Paul knows this, that there's an ambush. Maybe the Lord tells him, just like in the previous chapter, or he just sniffed everything that was going on, going on around it. So Festus is very interested in, in, in the situation. And in verse 4 says, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was brought to leave it shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential male among you go there with me. And if anyone is annoying anything wrong about the men, let them prosecute him. After he had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and then on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jewish who had come down from Jerusalem stood, stood around him, bringing many and serious accusations against him which they could not prove. Very important. They couldn't prove anything. That's why Felix couldn't kill him. That's why they couldn't touch him when he was in Jerusalem before the council. And even now before Festus, he knows that he cannot prove anything. At a moment, we don't know why. I don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us right there. But we could assume that because he, is, he knows the verse that, that we talked before in Acts 9, that he's going to go before kings. He appeals to Caesar, to Caesar, his cause. Um, look at verse 8. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and still trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried and I have done no wrong to the Jews as you very well know. If then I am wrong, a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true in which this man accused me, no one can hurt me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. You know, that, you know what's fascinating about this? A Jew would not be able, a Gentile would not, would not be able to appeal to Caesar. That means, imagine, it, this would have been really embarrassing for anybody that was in power back in those days. So let's think of Festus. Festus is a governor provided by Rome to be the governor of a province, in this case, Palestine. And if a case goes, if a case is moved from this court with Festus and it goes up to the king, then it means that Festus is not smart enough to deal with the situation. So, 
But this, this, this is the, the, the problem. Paul has been already through the trials with the Jewish people, and they wanted to kill him. He's moved up to the other governor with Felix, and he's not given any answer to it. And now he wants, he's been told that he, they want him to come back to Jerusalem. And he's thinking, I am not going to go back to that situation. So he has the right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, to Caesar and say, I need my case to be heard by Caesar. So this is very interesting because the time that he's going to be in Rome where he's writing letters, especially first and second Timothy, he's doing that while he's waiting his case to be heard in the appeal of, of, of Caesar himself. That's very interesting. That's that's now, but why is it that God is interested in moving Paul from this area of Caesarea to Rome? Because we have to think about that. It's not Paul that wants to go there. I believe is that God wants Paul to go from this place where he has limited um, exposure to people to Rome himself, where we could even witness to Caesar himself. Isn't that beautiful? Because, yeah, the gospel might frighten people, but in the case of Festus, he, gives them, he leaves them very confused, very, very confused, because he says to them to uh, one day, you know, the, the king of the area, uh, King Agrippa, comes with his, with his wife, Bernice. Now, where several days had elapsed, King Agrippa, verse 13, 25, 13, arrived at Caesarea and paid the respects to Festus, while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man who has left here as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered to them, And it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before, um, uh, before he meets the accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but the next day took my seat of the tribunal and ordered the men to be brought before me. When the accuser stood up, then began bringing charges against him, him and uh, not for such crimes as I expected, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted he is alive. Being at a loss, how investigate in such matter, I asked whether was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered, ordered him to be in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear about this man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear about him. So then the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, amid a great prompt, they entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city and the command, and command of Festus. Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, all your gentlemen here present with you, you see this man about whom all people of Jews appeal to me, both at Jerusalem, here loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. 
but I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. That's, that's a lot of information. But you know, sometimes that's what the gospel could create in some people. It could create some, inform some confusion. Especially if you were brought up thinking that your, um, your good works were going to take you to heaven. And then all of a sudden you start reading the scriptures and you realize that you, you will never be able to do enough works. You will never be able to change your, your own destiny before the Lord with your own hands if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So many people that have been brought out in this idea that you can save yourself, they find themselves very confused when faced with the gospel. And then sometimes we don't, we don't help. You know why? Because sometimes we don't really know how to present the gospel. We don't even know. We, we believe it, but we probably don't know how to explain it. Granted, the situation here, some people would say, has nothing to do with the gospel. Really? What is the situation? The, resurrec the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is at stake. And even though everybody has made it in a way, the explanation is he's a troublemaker. He's converting many people from Jewish to this religion that we don't understand. And even in some cases, he's not loyal to, to Caesar. That's not, the, that's not exactly the accusation. Paul has said very clear, the accusation is that I believe in a man that died and was rose again. I believe in a man that was resurrected by the power of God who is now operating in everyone, everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same power that resurrected Christ from the dead is the same power that is operating in us, is acting on us. So see how this, this is related to the gospel in that Really, the problem is the resurrection of the Lord. But we need to think, why is it that the gospel sometimes is confusing for people? Sometimes it's confusing because we don't really know it. Now, there are some songs that might help us in that, right? Uh, I remember uh, an old song, a worship song that I learned with the kids. My heart was dark with sin. Until the Savior came in. His precious blood, I know, has washed me white as snow. To grow up in Christ every day, I read my Bible and pray. And in God's word, I'm told, I'll walk in the streets of gold. Nobody was singing with me. You don't know that one? Really? In Spanish, it goes very similar. Pecado negro encontró. Jesús en mi corazón. Su sangre ya lo lavó, cual nieve ya se quedó. En su palabra yo leo que al mundo, que al cielo fue a preparar hermosa mansión para aquellos que al mundo vino a salvar. Five things in the gospel. Five things. And many are going to say, Antonio, that the passage doesn't talk about that. Well, no, but you see, at a moment when we are talking to people and we're defending ourselves, what he's making, you see how beautiful is what he's doing? Paul is not making this about himself. He's not interested in being released from jail. He's interested in letting people know about the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't think that if he wanted, he would have been set free already? But he understands that it's more important about bear witness to the Lord than being free. And because of it, he, there's about five things that I've learned 
And I saw, I remember, we started a church a long time ago. My wife and I, well, back then we were dating, not even dating. She was, she was my platonic love. Um, I would look at her and think, oh, Lord, please make it happen. In the name of Jesus, and nothing would happen. And nothing would happen for about four years. But anyway, long story short, we were at a very poor place in Mexico. And we were uh, reaching out. We came to have about 100 kids. It was awesome. And I remember one day she was explaining the gospel to kids. And I thought, I think I need to remember that. Because she was saying, God loves me. See, that's how it starts. The gospel starts with love. God loves me. John 3, 16. But I am a sinner. And you know, nowadays, say the word sin is not politically correct. Well, it's semantics. Sin is important. You don't, you not only offended God, you sin against him. And because of it, you are completely separated from God. So God loves you, but you did something that, is, that deserves separation from a God that is perfect when you are not. Where do we find this? Romans 3.23. God loves me, but I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. Romans 5.8. That this is the love, the love of the Lord that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. God loves me, but I'm a sinner. God loves me, I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. If I believe in him as my personal savior, Romans 10.9. Right? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, then what's going to happen? You're going to be saved. You are saved. Finally, I'll be in heaven forever. I'm going home. I'm going to heaven to prepare uh, dwelling places. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you so. Five things that we need to remember when we are telling people. But, you know, don't diminish the fact that it's, it's not just you hurt God. You made some errors, some mistakes. The Bible calls it sin. And if we don't address it as such, people are not going to really get the full grasp of, their, of the, the situation that they're facing before the Lord. Maybe for some people it's semantics. I don't think it's just that. I think it's extremely important to, to name it for what it is. You have sin, and therefore you are, you are separated from God until you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He is confused. But then Agrippa, the king, now we move to the last one. I know, I know, I'm going to try to go faster. But we're getting there. So the gospel may frighten people. The gospel may confuse people. But the gospel requires witness plus conviction. You know, it's, it's great. I mean, we've been, we've been hearing about how sharing our story. And in Spanish, we say, in the Spanish congregation, the way that we share our story is, I was, but God, and now. I, got, I was, but God, and now. I was a sinner. I was someone that wanted, a, believe, that wanted a, to be a priest so that God probably would look at me as a priest and save me. But God showed me through the scriptures that I just need to believe in Jesus Christ 
And one day my brother invited me to a church where they believed this. And after three months of wrestling inside me, I couldn't resist anymore and I believe in Jesus Christ. And now, let me tell you, I'm not perfect, but God has been helping me. I'm not perfect, but I'm serving him as I could and as I should and as I ought to. So I, I was but Christ and now. Why am I saying this? Because for the next uh, verses, what Paul is going to do with Agrippa is tell his story. This is who I was. This is how I found, how the Lord Jesus Christ found me. And this is what I'm doing now. I'm preaching that he's resurrected. At a moment, he turns to Agrippa. He's, he's fixing himself in Agrippa and he's saying this to him. And Festus couldn't take it anymore. Look at verse uh, 26, 24. Acts 26, 24. So the, whole, the previous part, if you think about it, he's just sharing this idea that I was but Christ and now. And, and he's saying so many words like, like me today, trying to cover so much information. And it says in verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense... Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has, is driving you mad. Well, what he's saying is, I cannot, I cannot understand everything that you're saying. It's just a bunch of information. I cannot deal with this. At that moment, Festus is, uh, Paul is fixed, is fixated, is completely focusing on Festus, uh, on, on, on King Agrippa. And at a moment, he says, in verse 28, 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied, Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for the chains. Isn't it beautiful? It's not about Paul. It's not about be him being free. It's not about people having a good reputation of Paul. It's about them coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what is important. And sometimes we stop witnessing to people, really, because a few things. Like Paul Rainier, he mentions a few, and I'm just going to mention very briefly, but it might, mean that we, it might be that we don't know how to evangelize people, how to present the gospel adequately. Then ask someone, ask one of, the, one of the pastors, ask Mitch, ask somebody to teach you how to present the gospel accurately. It might be that we have very few role models because too many, too few, very few people today go out and try to evangelize. But Antonio, we're not that kind of people. I know we aren't. The question is, should we? Some church members are convinced about their lostness, really the lostness of the world. You know, maybe at the end of time, the Lord is going to sort things out and he's going to let everybody in. We're not universalists. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ came to die for those that believe in him. There is no other way. There's no other way, no other life, no other truth. There's only one way, one truth, and one life. And if we don't get that, 
then we are not believing really what, the, what Paul is preaching. Some say, oh, it's just that my style is more relationship. You know, I, I like people and, and I like that people like me. So when, they, when these people get to heaven and, and the Lord asks, why should I let you into my heaven? This person is going to say, because I had a friend that was Christian. It's not about knowing a person. It's knowing the person. It's not about having information. It's about believing the information that we have given them. It's not about, I understand, and we want to be nice to people. So that then we have a platform to share the gospel. But they need to have the information. And if we don't share it, they're not going to have it. And they're gonna they aren't going to believe it. Last one. Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people might think of me. I'm afraid of losing certain relationships. I'm afraid that they might believe. Yeah, you see? You see? Paul was accused of being a crazy. I don't want people to believe that I'm crazy. Well, let me tell you one thing. People already think that I'm crazy. So, just saying, I'd rather let people believe that I'm a little bit crazy and get a few with me to heaven and spend eternity with them. You know how comforting it is to go to a funeral like Pastor Mitch's mom and hear the words, she is in heaven with Jesus. Do you know what that brings to a, to a heart like mine? It brings joy. Because what if there was a question mark upon that place? What if there was a question mark? There wouldn't be joy. So Agrippa says, you almost convinced me. Almost convinced me. Like many people have, tell, have told us. You almost convinced me. Hey, guess what? Breathe deep. And release. You see how that pressure is gone? The pressure is not on us to convince people. It's the Holy Spirit who has to convince people. But let me tell you lastly. But they need to be convinced about something. And that information is our responsibility. That's why we are witnesses. But the Holy Spirit convinces. Three applications and we finish. Learn it. Learn how to share the gospel. Learn it. We got to learn it. Two, pray about it for yourself and for others. Lord, I'm afraid. I really don't like it. Well, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no option. Said by the Lord, we have no option. We have to take this gospel to people. And maybe, you know, out of five people, none of them believe. Neither the two... Uh, the two governors, nor the king, nor their spouses. None of, nobody believed. But Paul's responsibility was not to make converts, but to share the gospel. So pray about it. Pray that the Lord would give you the words to witness and the courage to witness. Finally, share it this week. How many people? I don't know. One, two, three. That's between you and the Lord. But we cannot preach a, gospel, a message like today's message and then, say, and then go and say, go and be fed. 
May the Lord bless you for the rest of the week. We have to understand that then God is expecting us to do something. Learn it. Pray about it. Share it. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, today we have encountered how Paul went to three different people, three different men and two different women, and many others that were hearing what he had to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, by human standards, he probably wasn't successful because none of them came to know you as a personal Savior. But by your standards, we believe that he did what was right. So help us, Father, to have that courage today. Father, I confess that I'm too fearful sometimes of what people might think of lose some, losing some friendships or some, some relationships. Help me to value more them in eternity than the relationship with them for a few, few more years. Give us that conviction, Lord. And may many people will come close just like what Agrippa did and saying, you almost convinced me. But I pray that many more would come to know you as a personal Savior. I pray for courage. I pray for all of us, Father. May this congregation, may this church of Redeemer Community Church would grow because we open our mouths and share the gospel. We pray this. And we pray also for Pastor Mitch. Help him as he deals with, the, with, the, with losing his mom. We thank you that you are so comforting to us. That even in moments when we are feeling and, and, and experiencing loss, that we could look up to you and feel comfort by our Father in heaven, our good shepherd, the one that is our, our, our Father and comforts us. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.